0: Well, I am grateful and humbled by the opportunity to serve you as one of your pastors. Uh, My family and I have been so encouraged uh, by this church. We are glad to make it such a valuable part of our lives, and we do look forward to getting to know many of you as well. Um, This ministry position was not something that we were looking for when we came here. Uh, It wasn't something I anticipated. It was not something that I even sought after, Uh, but... I do believe that the Lord brought us here for the right time, for the right purposes. And and for that, we are grateful. Uh, It was clear to us that the Lord's hand was in this connection. Not everything in life is so clear, though, is it? There's a lot of gray in life. Uh, There's a lot of ambiguity. God, why would you do things that way? You know, why did you choose to allow that to happen? Uh, God, how come you didn't prevent this? Or why can't you just do it like that? The passage that we're going to look at today in Nehemiah chapter 2 has a lot of unexpected gray. If we were to just study this passage in isolation, we probably wouldn't notice it so much. But we have been studying the books of Ezra and Nehemiah since September, and we have to realize that this passage is part of a bigger story, and it's part of the really big story of the rest of Scripture. If you need a Bible, by the way, our ushers are coming around to hand one out. Just raise your hand and they are happy to give you one. And that is our gift to you Uh, as a church. We want everybody to have the scriptures in their hands. If we look at the first two verses of Nehemiah chapter 2, we see that it jumps right into a story that's already happening. Jumps right into the flow from what we saw in Nehemiah 1 last week. So let's read verses 1 and 2 and that will remind us of where we have been. Nehemiah chapter 2. Verses 1 and 2. And it came about in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him. And I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, Why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. Now, we can't read this passage in isolation. It's part of a larger ongoing story. Ezra and Nehemiah as a whole tells us the story of the Israelites returning from 70 years of exile. In Ezra 1 to 6, God's people work to rebuild and restore their temple. Ezra 7 to 10, God's people work to rebuild and restore themselves. And then in Nehemiah, between Ezra 10 and Nehemiah chapter 1, there's about 17 years. There's a big gap of time. So, the temple has been rebuilt. The people are working on restoring their own lives. A spiritual crisis was in their midst. And Nehemiah 1 opens up with Nehemiah, 445 BC, in Persia. He's outside of Jerusalem. Nehemiah is the king's cupbearer. Now, that means he had to taste a lot of really good food and drink. But the purpose of him tasting it before the king ate it was to make sure that none of it was poisoned. So there were some pros and cons to this job, I would imagine, right? A pro is you got to taste a lot of great food. A con is it might be poisoned to kill you. Kind of like working at Taco Bell, right? So for Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 1, Nehemiah hears that the walls of Jerusalem are broken and in disarray. They're broken down. Progress and God's city has stopped. The situation is especially difficult for Nehemiah because according to Ezra 4, It was during the reign of King Artaxerxes that the progress on the wall stopped. Now, King Artaxerxes is the king for whom Nehemiah serves as cupbearer. It's kind of like finding out that your boss just petitioned the city council to deny your own church the right to repair their building. It's awkward. It's difficult. It's potentially a dangerous situation for your job if you were to bring anything up and ask him to to stop. Now, Nehemiah is heartbroken over this. He weeps, and he fasts, and he, he prays that God would change the situation. He, he knows that the people's sin have led them to this place, and he asks God mercy upon them. That's all Nehemiah chapter 1. So chapter 2 picks up four months after Nehemiah 1. Nehemiah hears about Jerusalem's walls. It's the month of Nisan. It's spring, April. It's time for after-winter parties in the king's court. And the text says that Nehemiah waits until the king had the wine before him. In other words, the king has been drinking. Maybe he's in a party. Down in verse 6, we're going to find out that his wife was with him. Maybe that suggests that they're partying together. And you know the old saying, every party has a pooper. And that's why we invited Nehemiah, right? (laughs) Nehemiah is the party pooper. He's walking around with a sad face. He's not sick, but he's kind of a downer. You know, he's no fun. Now, in today's world, he would just be labeled a killjoy, and we don't invite him to the next party. That's how it goes. But if you were the king's cupbearer, you were expected to not bring down the mood of the party. You had to elevate yourself and match whatever mood was around you. Too much moping in the king's court could actually get you killed. That's why when the king notices Nehemiah's sadness, Nehemiah tells us, then I was very much afraid. He's afraid because the king could decide that he's ruining the party and say, off with his head, and Nehemiah's job and life are over. So Nehemiah takes this opportunity to make his big request. The king has wine before him. Nehemiah's got to shoot his shot sometime, and now is the time. So, verse 3, he says, I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? Now what we're going to see here is that Nehemiah is a master diplomat. Notice he starts off with the line, let the king live forever. That ought to make Artaxerxes happy. Butter him up a little bit to start with. Then he tells Artaxerxes what's up, but notice how he never directly mentions Jerusalem. Never says the city's name. He doesn't say Jerusalem's walls are broken down. Instead, he says, listen, I'm brokenhearted because the place of my ancestors is in ruin. Its gates are destroyed. The the city is in ruins. If he comes right out and says Jerusalem's walls are broken, Artaxerxes might be inclined to not help. Because Artaxerxes was the one that stopped the walls from being built. So Nehemiah very carefully draws Artaxerxes in. He's kind of like a politician here in this sense. Now the king, he's no dummy. He knows a request is coming. Verse 4, the beginning of it, he says, Then the king said to me, What would you request? And before answering him, Nehemiah says in the last half of verse 4, So I prayed to the God of heaven. A quick little prayer. Last week we studied a long prayer, Nehemiah 1. A rich, heartfelt prayer, a a prayer saturated with biblical language. We saw a prayer like that again in in Ezra chapter 9, deep and, and rich and full of theology, full of meaning. Nehemiah can pray the long prayers, but he also knows when to throw up a quickie before the Lord. And both of those kinds of prayers are needed in a Christian's life, aren't they? You've got to pray the long prayers sometimes. Deeply consider rich theology. Pray scripture back to God. Spend a long time on your knees before the Lord. But sometimes when your boss unexpectedly calls you into his office, or when you you have to talk to your kids about something very difficult, or when you're caught in an unexpected, dangerous situation, or whatever it might be, sometimes the quick one-liner is what is needed. Lord, help me. Sometimes that's all that's needed. The Lord knows your heart. The Lord knows the situation. The Lord knows that you need his help. Lord, help me. So after this quick prayer, Nehemiah makes his bold request. And again, he's very diplomatic in his speech. He's he's a bit of a politician. He says in verse 5, I said to the king, If it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, That I may rebuild it. Now, once again, he never comes right out and says Jerusalem. He says it, but he doesn't quite say it, right? He doesn't directly mention the Jews or the Israelites, but he still makes his bold request. And he really leans into the relationship that he's built with the king. He's got a good track record with this guy. If you've found favor, if I've found favor before you, in other words, if, if I've been a good worker, please reward me with this one simple request. But it's not so simple a request, is it? We're going to see that in a minute. Here's how the king responds, though, right away. Verse 6 Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will your journey be? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him a definite time. Now, Nehemiah doesn't tell us, though apparently he told the king. But we do know how far away the journey was. If you take a look at the screen, we've got a map up here for you. This is the probable route that Nehemiah would have traveled. A more direct route would have been right through the desert, but you wouldn't want to do that on camels and horseback and all. So they would have traveled up the Euphrates River and then down through Israel to Jerusalem. This is a journey of over 500 miles on foot. Let that sink in just for a moment. Nehemiah is not requesting an extended weekend after a holiday. He's saying, I want to travel 500 miles to my homeland. I'm likely going to be at least several months, if not several years, until the job is complete and I can come back. For those of you who run a business, imagine your manager putting in this kind of request to you. Or imagine you're the manager or a business manager of a restaurant or a server coming up to you and saying, can I go? not just for a weekend, not just for a week, but can I go away for a couple of months, different country, do what I've got to do, and then come back? It would need to be a work of God in the king's heart for him to say yes to this request. But we've already seen in Ezra and Nehemiah that God is capable of doing such work, isn't he? Even in the heart of a pagan king who doesn't know the Lord. But Nehemiah doesn't even stop there. Once the king grants him permission to leave, Nehemiah takes it one step further, actually a couple steps further. Look at verses 7 and 8. And I said to the king, if it pleased the king, let letters be given me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river, that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city, and for the house to which I will go. And the king granted them to me because the good hand of my God was on me. Nehemiah asks for two different kinds of letters to travel with. He wants a letter that will go to all the governors of the provinces beyond the river, and in other words, all the leaders beyond the Euphrates River. he wants a letter that will grant him safe travel back and forth. But he also wants a letter for the king's version of Home Depot. He wants timber. He wants wood, right? He wants wood to build three things. He says, I want to build the gates for the temple, the fortress. I want to build the wall, of the city of Jerusalem. And I want wood to build my own house. I mean, suddenly his big request just got bigger. Again, imagine you own a business and your most trusted manager comes to you one day and say, hey, I want to leave town for a little while. And you're thinking, sure, what do you want, a week? You want two weeks? You've earned it. And he's like, how about a few months or years? And I'm leaving the country. And also, can you give me a few million dollars so I can build my own house while I'm there? And remarkably, the king says, yes. He grants the request. He says, yes. And Nehemiah says, the king grants the request because the good hand of my God was on me. Now, that is very important. I don't want you to miss this church. I've read all sorts of wacky theories about why Nehemiah and what Nehemiah is trying to do in this chapter, how he gets about where he's trying to go with this request. Some people think Nehemiah used his position as a cupbearer and, and he got the king drunk and then he asked his permission while the, the king was a bit tipsy. Some people say Nehemiah's leadership prowess, his, his political savvy was what got him in that door and, and then he waits until the king's wife is there so that way he's more inclined to say yes. Yes. But we don't want to focus on Nehemiah here. That's not the point. The point isn't to read this chapter and say, look at what Nehemiah does and do that. Rather, the point is, God is at work. Just like God was at work in King Cyrus in Ezra chapter 1, God is at work in King Artaxerxes in Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah attributes rightly his success with the king to the good hand of God upon his life. Now, if you've been paying close attention in this series, maybe that phrase might jump out to you. We've seen that phrase several times before. Ezra, Ezra chapter 7 and chapter 8. Ezra uses this phrase several times about himself and about the Israelites on his journey when he went from Babylon down to Jerusalem. He recognized that God's good hand was upon him. The difference, though, between Ezra and Nehemiah is that in Ezra's case, The third person, omniscient narrator of the text confirmed Ezra's words. Twice before Ezra ever says anything about God's hand, the narrator tells us God's hand was upon him. In other words, we know for sure that God's good hand was upon Ezra, not just because we take his word for it, but because the narrator confirms it. We see evidence of it. With Nehemiah, there's a subtle little difference, though. Nehemiah says it about himself but we never hear any collaboration from the narrator of the text. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that the good hand of God was not upon Nehemiah? I don't know. I want to be careful not to overread silence into the text. But there is another interesting contrast between Ezra and Nehemiah that comes up in the very next verse, and that's what gives me pause. Look at verse 9. See if any of this sounds familiar to you. He says, Then I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. Does that sound familiar to you? Here's why I'm making a big deal of this hand of God thing. Nehemiah tells us that he was sent with officers of the army and horsemen. He was sent with an armed guard, a bodyguard in other words. Now here's why that might be kind of a big deal. Remember back in the book of Ezra, Ezra takes his journey from Babylon to Jerusalem almost the same distance, same kind of thing. But in Ezra chapter 8, Ezra tells us this. Look at verses 21 to 23 in Ezra 8. Ezra says, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahavah, and we might, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek him for a safe journey for us, our little ones and all our possessions. For I was ashamed to request from the king troops and horsemen to protect us from the enemy on the way. Because we had said to the king, the hand of our God is favorably disposed to all who seek him, but his power and his anger are against those who forsake him. So we fasted and we sought our God concerning this matter, and he listened to our entreaty. As Ezra is making his journey, he also had the option to request from the king troops and horsemen to protect him. But he doesn't. He's too ashamed to. He's too ashamed to because he just got done telling the king God's good hand is upon us and therefore we don't need that kind of protection. God is our protection. And when we saw that passage, we meditated on it. We, We heard it preached. We all said, wow, what faith Ezra had, right? What godliness, what a great display of trust. And then what does Nehemiah do? Nehemiah says, the hand of God is upon me. But then he takes the king's army and guard, and officers, and horsemen. If we're going to praise Ezra for his faith in God by rejecting the bodyguard, well, what do we say about Nehemiah who accepts the bodyguard? And the answer is, I'm not quite sure. The text doesn't come out and tell us that Nehemiah asked for this or that he was, he was doing something wrong by taking it. Certainly the king agrees to send him and support him, so all of it seems to indicate that God's good hand was upon him. But some of Nehemiah's actions seem to me to be directly contrary to Ezra's actions. Now again, I'm not sure that we're supposed to say Nehemiah did something wrong here. But the contrast with Ezra might also encourage us to say, I'm not so sure Nehemiah is doing it the right way. There's some ambiguity in Nehemiah's leadership and his actions. There's a lot of gray here, in other words. I'm not going to try to solve the problem of Nehemiah just yet. Let's read on a little bit more, see if that clarifies anything, or if it continues to muddy the waters. But before we get to more of Nehemiah, the text introduces the bad guys in the story. Look at Nehemiah 2, verse 10. When Sambalet the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about it, It was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. This sets up the villains of the story. Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite. If you take a look at another map on the screen, you can see where these guys were located. They were from nations outside of Israel. And they were not happy that Nehemiah plans to do good for Israel. In fact, the original text of Hebrew is very emphatically worded here. It literally reads, and it was evil to them, a great evil that someone had come to seek the good of the sons of Israel. To them, Nehemiah was doing great evil, even though he was attempting to do great good. They looked at what was good and they called it evil. It's pretty clear. These guys are the bad guys. They're on the side of evil. Anyone who calls good evil is not a friend of the church. Anyone who looks at what the church or what Christians are doing and calls that sin, that person is not on the right side of history. It's true for their day and it's true for our day as well. I don't need to spend a whole lot of time convincing you of the abhorrent practices of our culture or pointing out how so many people are labeling good what we know is evil and calling evil what we believe is good. You see it all over the place. Lord, have mercy on our country, for the Sambalets and Tobias of our day are rampant. Well, the stage is set. Nehemiah makes the journey from Persia to Jerusalem. He's made a few enemies along the way. Let's read and see what happens when he arrives. Next paragraph, starting in verse 11. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. And I arose at night, I and a few men with me. I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem, and there was no animal with me except the animal on which I was riding. So I went out at night by the valley gate in the direction of the dragon's well and on to the refuse gate, inspecting the walls of Jerusalem which were broken down and its gates which were consumed by fire. Then I passed on to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was no place for my mount to pass. So I went up at night by the ravine and inspected the wall. Then I entered the valley gate again and returned. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done, nor had I as yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the rest who did the work. So this describes a covert nighttime operation of Nehemiah Nehemiah, under the cover of darkness. And, And remember how dark darkness was back then. They didn't have street lamps lighting the way. They didn't have all this light pollution out there so that they could see even when it was dark out. I mean, it was dark. And under that cover of dark, Nehemiah goes out, just him and his animal, perhaps a donkey, probably not an elephant, you know, something small that he could get around quietly with. A few men were with him, but they had no idea what he was doing and why he was doing it. He's very clear about that. Twice he tells us, right up in the front of that paragraph, and then at the end of verse 16, no one knew what he was doing. Not the Jews, nor the priests, nor the the nobles, the Persian officials, nobody understood his plan. Maybe they just thought he was taking his donkey for a midnight walk. We don't know. But if you take one more look at the map, you can see he left through the valley gate on the west side of the city. He makes his way down to what the New American Standard translates the refuse gate. Uh, Other translations might be a little bit more crude to say something like the trash gate or the dung gate, Um, the poop gate, in other words. I'll let you use your imagination to figure out exactly what that gate would have been used for. Let's just say you probably don't want the kids playing on the south side of the city, right? Come back from the dung gate, wash your hands, change your clothes, kids, you know what I mean. Anyway, Nehemiah works his way down south. He's inspecting the crumbling walls as he go down. He goes to the east side of the city, and then he returns down the path he came. He does all of that in secret. Now, most people don't even know he did it. And the people who were with him don't even know why he did it. What's with all the secrecy? This might be just simply wise leadership here, right? He's made enemies on his journey from Persia to Jerusalem. He doesn't want anyone to know what's up. But if that's the case, why not let the other Jewish leaders in on what he's doing? Does he not know who he can trust yet? Is he a lone ranger kind of leader? What exactly is going on here? Those are all good questions. None of which I'm going to answer for you today. (laughs) I can't answer it because the text doesn't answer it. That's part of the ambiguity of Nehemiah. It's part of the gray in this text. But again, the gray is okay today because the point is not do what Nehemiah does. The point is not to compile a list of all the the great leadership principles from Nehemiah and encourage you to obey them. This is not a how-to manual on how to build a church building. What we see here is how God sovereignly accomplishes his purposes despite the gray areas of our life. If you've been to any church for any time, I am sure that you can look back and you can say, you know, if I were in leadership, I'm not so sure I would have done it exactly the way that they did it. Maybe you look back and you say, I'm not so sure so-and-so always led in the best kind of way. You might be right or wrong about these things. I don't know. I haven't been long enough here to even know all the history of the decisions and all that. I'm not commenting on any particular leader in this church at all. But what I'm saying is when we look back and we see gray in our church and in our leaders, what's remarkable to me is how God works despite those nebulous areas of our life. Praise God for his faithfulness. I worked for a long time in a church whose leadership structure was simply unbiblical. It was ungodly in in many ways in some of the things that they did. And what was amazing to me was that when I look back at that church's history and see that God still worked not because of their leadership, but perhaps sometimes despite their leadership. That's the faithfulness of the God that we serve. There are very few Ezra's in leadership. When I look at Ezra, he is a very black and white kind of guy. Very few guys that we can look at in scripture and say, we agree with just about everything that this person did. His leadership was unambiguous. He led with great motives. He led towards the Lord. There are very few Sambalats and and Tobias in leadership. There are a few, but there aren't many. There aren't many who we look at and say, man, that person was pure evil. That person clearly had the wrong motives. That person called right wrong and wrong right. Most leaders, I would suspect, are more like Nehemiah. They're gray. Sometimes a little bit ambiguous. Imperfect. In other words, but that's the joy of having a perfect, good, sovereign God. God accomplishes his purpose, even using imperfect vessels like me and you. Praise God for that. I think as we go throughout the book of Nehemiah, you're going to see this gray more clearly. There are hints of it here and there, just hints of it in chapter two, but then it gets greater as you go. And as we go, we're definitely going to see cracks in Nehemiah's armor, More cracks than we saw in Ezra. Well, That's why we don't worship Nehemiah. We worship Jesus. We worship God. We worship a perfect leader who has made all the right decisions in the right way every time. You know what that tells me? I'm one of your pastors now, but I am not your savior. I won't lead you perfectly. I'll try. I'll do my best. But I will fail you at times to be just like Jesus. That's why you should not put your hopes in Pastor Brian. Pastor Austin is a great guy. Really enjoyed getting to know him too. The only gray I see in his life so far is his style of clothing. And that's (laughs) moral moral ambiguity right there, right? (laughs) But Pastor Austin is not Jesus. As great of a leader as he will be, God will accomplish his purposes in Riverstone despite Pastor Austin, not because of him. The same goes for Pastor Jeremy and Pastor Tom and any other pastors that you'll ever have. We are not Christ. We are not your Savior. But God will do a work in and through us anyway. That's the faithfulness of our God. God used Nehemiah, a gray, ambiguous kind of leader, To rebuild those walls. After Nehemiah's nighttime journey through and around Jerusalem, the Bible tells us in verses 17 to 20. Then I said to them, You see the bad situation we're in, that Jerusalem is desolate, its gates burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me, and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me. Then they said, Let's arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. But when Sambal at the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard it, they mocked us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? So I answered them and I said to them, The God of heaven will give us success. Therefore we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. Nehemiah paints the Jewish leaders a picture. He says, look at this bad situation that we're in. Look at the walls. Look at the ruins. We are a disgrace. It's time to rebuild. And he reiterates his belief that God's hand is upon them. He he informs them of his conversations with the king. He lets them in on his plan. And right away, without hesitation, the people all rally up and say, let's arise and build. There is a great confidence in those words, isn't there? They are ready for the work. Next week, we're going to see some of that work. And the text says at the end of verse 18, they put their hands to the good work. In fact, the word work there isn't even in the original text. They put their hands to the good. Remember, there is a contrast here between good and evil. The enemies, Sambalat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, they found evil. It was great evil to them that the people were trying to do good. And now the Israelites hear Nehemiah's plan, and they immediately start working on that good. And notice how that's contrasted again directly with those enemies in verse 19. The enemies mock the Israelites. They despise them. They mock them because they think the project is ridiculous. This can't be done, they say. You won't succeed. It is foolish to even try. They despise them because that which is evil always hates that which is good. Evil is not content to just allow the good to do what they're supposed to do. Never is. They have to see the good people suffer. They have to see the joy removed and the rights taken away and progress slowed. Evil is never content to let good just do their thing. The unholy trinity of bad guys here, they say it like this. Are you rebelling against the king? Because remember, back in Ezra chapter 4, the progress on the wall stopped because King Artaxerxes commanded for it to be stopped. So these bad guys here in Nehemiah 2, they don't realize that same king allowed the wall to be rebuilt again. But Nehemiah, he isn't scared because of their words. He's not worried. Say what you will about Nehemiah's leadership. He is decisive and abrasive. He's probably from New Jersey. He gets the job done, right? The God of heaven will give us success, he says. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. There's confidence there. You have no portion. You have no right. You have no memorial in Jerusalem. There's no gray in that. He knows what's up. Past, present, and future, you have no stake in this claim. Nehemiah states it in no uncertain terms. God will bless this project until it's finished, and you have nothing to do with it. How do you think that's going to sit with the enemies? We're going to have to wait a few more weeks until we hear back from these three knuckleheads. But what's clear is that Nehemiah and the people resolve to build those walls. They commit to doing the right thing. Nehemiah, by the power of God's hand, is granted permission by the pagan king to travel hundreds of miles with a lot of money, a lot of resources, to rebuild the wall that that same pagan king originally ordered not to be built. That's God's hand at work. Doesn't matter what we think about Nehemiah's leadership. That's not the point. What we see here in this chapter can only be attributed to the work of God through his people. God sovereignly accomplishes his purposes despite those gray areas of life. Now that fact makes me think through a couple helpful truths for our lives. The fact that God sovereignly accomplishes his purposes despite the gray areas of life tells me that when I fail and when I mess up, and I do fail and I do mess up, just ask my wife, she'll tell you, it does not mean that God can no longer use me for his kingdom. Don't get me wrong. When we sin, that can severely hinder God's work. I'm not saying that sin has no consequence in life. That's not what I'm saying. But when you think of the greatest failure of your life, please realize that God uses imperfect people like you all the time. All the time. That's what the gospel is all about. Jesus died for you, even while you were still a sinner, the Bible says. Jesus died for you. He didn't ask you to clean yourself up and then become perfect and then come to the cross. Jesus said, come to the cross and then I will clean you up. There's one time when one of my kids was really young, just a few years old. We heard him crying down the hallway. It was nighttime. He was in his bedroom. We were in hours and it was the middle of the night. We hear him crying and I got up to help and I saw him come out of his room and it was immediately clear what had happened. There was vomit everywhere. I mean, it was in his hair, it was on his clothes, it was dripping on the floor. And my son, who who probably was only about three years old or so at the time, he came crying and running down that hallway to me just covered in in those bodily fluids. And I remember I got down on my knees and I held out my hands and when he got close to me, I grabbed his shoulders and I said, get back in your room and clean yourself up before you hug me, son. (laughs) No, of course not, right? And I grabbed him and I hugged him, vomit and all, and I said, it's okay. Daddy's got you. And then I took him into the bathroom and handed him off to my wife for her to clean up when I went back (laughs) to bed. As ridiculous as that sounded, as you're laughing about this, Some of us view our relationship with God in that same way. Get cleaned up, then God will accept you. It's not how it works. Come to Jesus, and he will start doing the work of cleaning the vomit out of your hair. But come to him, vomit and all. We think, first I need to get really holy, then I can share Jesus with some people. First I need to figure out all the answers, and then I could be a better witness. That's not how it works. Getting holy and getting more answers is great. But Jesus Christ can use you even now. With all your warts and imperfections, with all the gray in your life, God delights in using you because that gives him the glory instead of you. Nehemiah is not going to be a perfect leader. We're going to see that. But God uses him. Despite his rough patches, despite his failures, despite his sin, God uses him and God can use you too wherever you're at in your life. Now, second, the fact that God sovereignly accomplishes his purposes despite our gray areas tells me that God is the one in the driver's seat. He is in control. Think about it like this. God changed the heart of a pagan king to go, as, to go against his own edict to allow his most trusted cupbearer to take a several hundred mile journey that could last several years of absence, sending him with tons of money, military guard, whatever you want, away to his homeland. Why? What would cause a king in his right mind to allow that to happen? The answer can only be God. God changed that king's heart. It's not because Nehemiah was so savvy. It's not because Nehemiah was a a political genius. He might have been those things. But it's because God was at work. God wanted those walls to be built, and he got them built. Well, what's that got to do with us? We don't have walls to build right now, do we? If God desires to accomplish something in your life, he will do it despite the obstacles that stand in your way. Sometimes we are going to feel like all the cards are stacked up against us. How am I going to go on this mission trip with my my boss breathing down my neck all the time and my bank account now in just double digits and my health issues and all that? If God wants you to go, he will make a way for you to go. Step out in faith and see what God will do through you. We might need to be bolder in our requests and our prayers. We might need to have a deeper trust in God. But if God desires to bless us, no human effort can stop him. God sovereignly accomplishes his purposes. Praise him. Let's close our service this morning with a prayer, asking God to do a work through Riverstone Church in the coming years ahead. Let's pray. God, I would ask that through your sovereign goodness, that you would help us to accomplish great things on your behalf. Lord, you delight in using imperfect vessels like me, like the others on our staff, like the others in our church to accomplish what you desired to be accomplished here. I pray, Lord, despite our sin, despite our weakness, despite our failures, that you would work your power in and through us, that your kingdom might grow, that disciples might be made, that people might come to know Jesus Christ as their savior. Lord, give this church a bolder confidence to go out and share you with other people as they leave here today. I pray, Lord, that you would help them to rely on your Holy Spirit instead of their own power, their own goodness, their own strength. And Lord, may we continually reflect on that beautiful gospel which has saved us, that Christ has died for our sins, that you've risen again, and you've done that while we were still sinners. Thank you, Lord, for the example that we saw in the text this morning. I pray that you would motivate us to go out And do your work now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless. Have a great day.